welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Shem Phillips, owner of Garfield Games and publisher of North Sea and West Kingdom series. His newest expansions to the Viscount series, Gates of Gold and Keeper of Keys, are currently crushing it on Kickstarter. Shem, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing, sir? Doing well, thanks. It is a pleasure to have you here. Uh, just at the top, I just want to say to our audience, and I'll say this at the beginning in case people kind of clip off too early, uh, we are actually running a giveaway this week. Uh, so check out our podcast uh, Instagram account, Board Game Binge Podcast. That's Board Game Binge Podcast. Our Instagram account, we do giveaways from time to time. Shem has been very, very gracious in donating a base copy of Viscount uh, as well as one of the expansions. So if you want to get in on this, this is an exciting giveaway. Check it out. We're probably going to have that go live about midday tomorrow. So check it out. So Shem, you have done just a boatload, my friend, of Kickstarter campaigns. I think I've counted 18 in total. Uh, would you call yourself like a Kickstarter expert at this point? or? Nah, I think I'm... I'm just an expert at what I, I do. I have a kind of focus of how I like to run a campaign, which might not always be the uh, the norm, but that's kind of what I've honed is like our, our style, our kind of, I guess, community vibe of our own Kickstarters. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, for the guests listening, I think you're actually the very, we've done, you're now episode, I think, 148. And I think you're the first person we've talked to directly from New Zealand, right? So that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, we've talked to people around the globe, but I think this is the first one on the Southern Hemisphere there. So I'm, I'm so appreciative to have you, uh, in, you know, work this into your schedule. I know it's kind of midday for you guys. How did you get into this whole industry? So Garfield Games, where did that come from? I started out doing it as a hobby, like um, must be going on about 13 years now, I think, or more. Um, wow. For about six years, I was just making games, very boutique kind of kit set style publishing. Um, so I'd do a few hundred copies at a time. Um, some of my games would even get over 100 copies. And that was like cutting cards with a die cutter, um, assembling the games myself, tucking stickers on boxes. So I did that for about six years. Um, and I think at that point, I was, I was quite keen to do bigger games because um, yeah. these were much smaller, mainly card game type games. And Kickstarter wasn't available in New Zealand. So I went to a New Zealand-based crowdfunding site called Pledge Me, did a game on there, which was my first ever game that I actually used like a Chinese manufacturer and made 500 copies of a game. Um, so that was a big learning experience. And then it would have been, I think within the year, Kickstarter opened up their doors to Kiwi um, creators. And that's when I put shipwrights on there. And that was uh, that's kind of when this journey took a big uh, left turn and actually, you know, a, good, a positive one. Um, and started to see a lot more attention from outside New Zealand. Um, and we've just been kind of honing our skills since then, really. Well, that game, I believe, had 1,300 backers, and you hit about, I think, 73,500 New Zealand dollars. Don't know how that worked into US dollars, but, I mean, that's, that's pretty... Thousand, yeah. yeah, that's pretty impressive for your first, uh, for your kind of first campaign there. Um, is that kind of what... Did you have the, did the bug bite you before then? Or was it that the one where you're like, all right, now this is, uh, this is the plan. I actually got into that one kind of thinking it might be my last game I ever designed. So, because I've been, you know, for a hobby for six years and I was, I was enjoying it, but 
you know, some other things in life. And I was like, oh, this has been a good hobby. Maybe I'll just do one final game and just get it done. Because um, this game had been sitting on my shelf for almost two years, uh, hoping to one day publish it. So I thought I might just print 500 copies, sell them at, at like cost price and then be done with it. Um, so it was a quite a big surprise to like get that much attention. You're actually sitting on the copy for a couple of years and you're like, ah, I may well throw this on Kickstarter. Yeah, pretty much. I knew I, knew I couldn't publish it myself through my normal means. So I knew I had yeah. to crowdfund it. Um, Pledge Me wasn't big enough because it was mainly for New Zealand. So yeah, with, with the Kickstarter, I thought, well, I just, I'll give it a shot. I wasn't expecting to sell many, maybe print 500, sell 200, that kind of thing. Yeah. And how many years ago was that? Um, my brain's not the best for counting, but probably, uh, probably seven years, I guess we've got two trilogies now. So I guess seven years ago, roughly. Wow. And when, when you were working on that was the thought process that like, cause when you, when you hit success like that, obviously the, you get kind of bitten by the bug from what I hear from a lot of the publishers I've talked to, but there's also a lot of frustrations and pain that sometimes comes with campaigns when you start scaling up to that size, right? Cause it's, it's, it's not, it's big enough that there's a lot of headaches that come with it, but it's still not the size where you're, you know, you're, you're living off of it and able to go out and kind of do that, that full time. So there's that kind of pain process in, in between. Was there doubt that entered your mind at that time? Was there any pain that you went through through? You're like, gosh, I don't know. It was fun, but man, <laughs> At first, like that kind of the community, the comments, that was quite overwhelming at first for me. Yeah. Um, and I think I often still talk about it, like the, my first campaign especially, it was like I was on catch-up for like a week behind where I should be in preparation for the campaign. Um, that that campaign had no videos and no reviews. Um, this is way back when you didn't really have to have them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really a real newbie at that point, learning and making tons of mistakes lost a lot of money on the first campaign and then lost more on the second campaign and then finally broke even on the third. So it was a, a long process to try and actually make it successful financially at least. Yeah. And what were some of the financial things that you did to try to help it break even? Was it predominantly just getting your cost and pricing and shipping and structure right? Or was there other things you did to try to help cover off those costs? Yeah, a lot of it was just getting the price right. Um, Cause I, I'm not, I'm not a big numbers person when it comes to like figuring out every little detail of like, of my logistics process. So I'm just a guy who likes to work on averages. Like, oh, it's probably about this much, you know, I figure it out as it goes. Um, so yeah, I lost, lost a few grand in the first one, but also just little things like people are asking, oh, can we get your old games? The old ones that aren't available, can we get those? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You can add them on for 10 bucks each. And didn't actually think about how am I getting those games to Europe and to America? Like where, how am I sending them? So I lost a lot of money just on that kind of, I guess, naive kind of um, promises that I made, yeah. um, which now now I know, like, don't give in to every little demand of the Kickstarter backers. You've got to think about it wisely. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's the challenge, isn't it, uh, sometimes? Because you want to please everybody. Uh, and when you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody, right? Yeah. <laughs> I had this on a campaign recently where I had someone, like, you know, it was the first, one of the first ones we had where we said, okay, we're just going to put the best product out there follow up block and key did from with the uh, inside ups games is uh, with no, no stretch goals. Like just, just we're going to put the best foot forward. We did that. And then we had people saying, Hey, like where's, where's the stretch goals? We're like, well, you know, we have some things that are going to be coming through the campaign, but you know, we said, we're not going to do stretch goals, you know, stretch goal, stretch goal, stretch. <laughs> so we, I mean, we put some stretch goals out and then the people who were demanding the stretch goals end up 
dropping out of the campaign, right? So it's like a lot of pain that sometimes you go through trying to satisfy everybody. And, and sometimes it's better to, to realize that you're not going to satisfy everybody. And sometimes it's better to cut some people loose, you know, for the greater good, right? And, you know, I think you made a good example of that when you have a back catalog and, you know, the natural inclination is to say, hey, why don't I include, you know, my catalog in this Kickstarter campaign? But for instance, say you're going to be fulfilling from Europe, like your UK, maybe you're going to have ShipQuest do if, uh, your fulfillment from the UK. Okay, well, does ShipQuest have copies of all those back catalog games? Because if the answer is no, not only are you paying for shipping for the new game to get to ShipQuest in the UK, but now you have to, wherever the, your games are in the other parts of the world, you have to then ship the old games to get there. So now you're paying twice the shipping cost for them then to bundle it together and ship it out. So sometimes it's better just to kind of, parse out what is most efficient, right? And uh, and let uh, kind of the, the regular retail kind of take care of it from there. Has retail been part of your strategy at all with some of these games? Have you been able to effectively uh, dip into your foot into the retail space? I tried um, quite early on to do it. And I had had some good contacts with, um, with distributors and stuff trying to get it in, but there's so many other challenges that come with that. Like we yeah. had about six grain of stock just damaged just trying to truck it from California to Florida, I think it was. Yeah. Um, so all the stock just got destroyed. Um, so that was like, uh, you know, that was a letdown for me because I was like, oh, that stuff just gone. Like, um, so, and when they're buying it at 40% and then it's gone, you're like, well, that they can't make that money back. Um, but fortunately for us, we made a partnership with Renegade. Um, so they basically take care of all our retail stuff. We oh, don't nice. worry about retail sales. We do a few to like, specific people who have been with us for a long time and they want to keep buying our stock directly mm-hmm. and genuinely we just say oh if you want to get our games go through normal distribution which i know is a huge privilege that most kickstarter creators won't have starting up um but fortunately for us yeah we've able to dodge the bullet of trying to get our games into stores um, but i know there's lots of resources out there that act like kind of the middleman that can help you get your games into distribution because Distributors want to have a big catalog of games to buy from, not just one or two games. So yeah, it's a it's a hard one for new creators for sure. That's where like consolidators too, right? Like uh, like Trade Quest or um, yeah. even like uh, Hit Point Sales uh, out, of, uh, out of the US, where they'll take the games, they'll take a percentage, and they'll go do all the work of getting it to the distributors. And you know, if they're putting like six cases of your games on uh, on a pallet it's it's way cheaper for them to ship a pallet full of a whole bunch of games right to that location than trying to sit you know you trying to ship six cases individually to uh to a store so yeah it's uh it's quite interesting so you're doing this like you've literally raised millions of dollars on your campaigns right millions right so it's one of our audience to know that that this is these these are some pretty huge franchises that you've created here right these series so I imagine you're doing it full time now, right? Yeah. What were you doing before that? What were you doing before? Like, what was your day job before you got into board games? I think when I first started doing this as a hobby, I was in a printing company. Okay. I, mean, I was at McDonald's before that, so as a manager, yeah. and then went to a digital printing company printing t-shirts on demand. Um, so that was like a small group of three or four of us that were just yeah, running a factory basically. Yep. Um, and then did that for six years. And towards the end of it, I was like, I just want to do games. That's all I want to do. You know, and I've been building up this, this company slowly um, to the point that I could bring a little bit of money out of it, but not much. Um, it wasn't until I actually went to Essen, met with some of my like French and German publishing partners at the time, 
and just seeing that like these are like full-time publishers like they have like three or four staff and somehow they can provide jobs for themselves and things like that so I kind of left there going like I'm one person um like I should be able to probably you know to provide for my for myself I have my family of course but you know I should be able to bring at least one wage um out of what I've created um so I kind of took the leap um, quit my job and fortunately it worked out otherwise it could have been pretty sad to probably be back at McDonald's or something but yeah, it's a, it was a risk and I took it and it paid off. So, And did you find that your printing experience, did that help inform some of your approach on the printing side with these games too, like coming in with that knowledge? Yeah, just understanding like, um, you know, like colors like CMYK, understanding yeah. things like the, the, the um, preparing digital files for print, bleeds, all that kind of jargon that um, graphic designers have to deal with. So I kind of upskilled quite a bit in my graphic design while I was there. Yeah, I was just talking to a colleague recently where, they uh, they had got their uh, their printed uh, run from uh, their printer, and they compare it to their digital samples, and they say it's not as vibrant <laughs> as the digital samples. It's like okay, but that's because it's a it's a completely different process. Right? Yeah. <laughs> digital is way different than doing uh you know uh, the, the the printing process with your SAMYK and you know separating plates and so forth. Um, so this game by count is part of a series. Now your your campaign is for the expansion, right? Two expansions, quite frankly, to the Viscount series. But I thought it'd be good for you to explain to the audience who maybe are not familiar with Viscount just essentially what that game is about and, and, and how you play it. Yeah, so Viscounts is like it's the third game in the trilogy. So we've had Architects, which is about building buildings, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Paladins, which is about sort of defending your city, and then Viscounts is like the king is kind of, he's losing, the people are losing faith in the king. We're not sure how long he's going to last, so let's make ourselves look nice in front of the people and you know, upstanding and that kind of stuff. Um, so in the game, you are going around kind of boosting your own favour, I guess, around different areas of society, like the, the merchants, the the clergy, and the, the I think it's like the builders and stuff. Um, and you... It's a deck building kind of hybrid game, I guess. So the action taking that you do is that you're playing card, one card from your hand into your tableau. And this is a tableau that is going to slide over one space every turn. So you play a yeah. card, next turn that slides, play a new card, but that other card's still there. And eventually you have a tableau of three cards just always cycling around. So you're kind of keeping cards in play. There's abilities to push them around to make them last longer. You got ongoing effects, drop-off effects, immediate effects. Um, but their whole system is to help you basically move around this giant double-ringed rondelle. Um, so you play a card, it might have an effect, then those, the little coin cost is going to say, that's how far you have to move. Um, and much like any rondelle game, where you land, you do some kind of benefit when you're there. So there's kind of four main actions you can do in the game. Three of them are kind of uh, your victory point kind of um, goals you're aiming for, I guess. Um, and there's lots of stuff going on. It's very, very multifaceted kind of game. Um, sorry, someone's right my door. Um, and yeah, it's 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 like a rondelle cross deck building with all other stuff going on. Classic Euro, lots of points, and that kind of stuff. So very deep, very replayable. Yeah. Yeah. And this rondelle, like the, and I got a picture on the screen here for people that are watching. This castle in the center is is super cool. Like you got this three-dimensional kind of plastic castle. And your people that you have in there, my understanding is if you have, as soon as you can get three people into kind of one segment of that, then one of them kind of gets, goes further into the castle, right? And the other two kind of go to side to, you know, to either side. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. A little explosion of people basically. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's cool. And then when you did that, your prototyping of that castle, 
Was there any challenges with that at all? Like, because often when you get into like kind of three-dimensional plastic pieces, which require molds and all that kind of jazz, uh, you know, it, it's a headache, right? So how did you approach this with this game? Did it always have that? Or is this something you kind of evolved to? Or For our early tests, it was just flat, you know, just paper with rings and um, mm -hmm. to get the mechanism working right. Um, but I did have a 3D printer in my possession. Um, mm. So I went out to try and actually make my own version of what the castle might look like. And I'm not a 3D, you know, um, rendering kind of person. I don't do that kind of stuff. Um, I'm all about blocks and shapes. So I jumped on, um, what's it called? I forget the name of it now. Um, Tinkercad, I think it's called, which is like a free online um, rendering kind of thing where you just grab shapes and move them around. Um, and I also used Illustrator just to make the kind of the top-down views of things. So like I could import all of like the outside ring at once and then the next ring on top of that. And so it's all precise um, within Tinkercad. Um, and then I, I think I must have done about eight or nine versions of the castle trying to get it right because it had to be, if it was any bigger, there was, was enough room for your Viscounts to move around. It was too tight because we're limited by the box size that we use. Um, if it was any smaller, then like there's no room to put the meeples in there. And it was too fiddly for big hands and stuff. You couldn't see icons because it's not enough space. So got in that sweet spot where it's just not too small, but also not too big. And um, yeah, it took a lot of time to get it to work right. Um, but the file we sent to the manufacturer, they then adjusted, you know, to make it better for printing. Um, they kind of scooped out the inside of it so it's less plastic and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it wasn't too much of a challenge really like um considering that i'm not skilled in that area um so it's it's kind of you can do it if you want to give it a shot um to create these kind of 3d elements but anything that's far more detailed like sculpted and you know characters i'm just i'm not even doing that because it's <laughs> that kind of talent you know yeah well certainly i mean that one i think did 1.3 million uh new zealand dollars on that campaign so clearly had enough uh, funds to actually fund the molds the challenge gets for smaller uh, publishers where they're they're not producing that many games, right? And uh, where the molds can be a significant cost uh, portion of the game, right? Yeah, and we consider like doing like paper craft or you know the um, punch board style castle as well, but mm -hmm. it's just such a hard shape to create. Yeah, well, a castle looks cool. Five sided shape looks awkward for a castle, so it kind of had to be a circle. Yeah. <laughs> Now, with your you, the, these new expansions, then so we've got um, uh, Keeper of uh, of Key and uh, of Key, sorry, and uh, the Gates of Gold. Can you explain the difference between these two uh, expansions and and what they bring into the the franchise? Sure. So Gates of Gold brings in um, a few things. The first one's a manuscript board, which is like a little kind of docking station for your manuscripts go. Um, but each time, or the first time you get um, a new ribbon type of manuscript. There's four types of colors on the game. Um, when you get your first blue, say, or your first black ribbon, that's going to unlock an ability in that column of, of action. So that kind of gives you more um, anytime actions you can turn to help draw cards, um, spend resources as coins, rearrange your tableau to you know benefit you, that kind of stuff. And it's just a place to kind of house them, which looks nice. Um, so there's that. And then there's this idea of King's Orders and Outsiders. So um, the king is, you know, he's kind of not sure what he's doing. He's letting anyone into the city, um, not checking them, that kind of stuff. So it's it's our role to like go, should we let them in or not? Um, so you get these king's order cards, which are basically really rubbish cards that you have to play into your tableau if you want them to, to trigger. 
And when they drop off your Tableau, you get to recruit one of these outsiders into your group. You welcome them in, and now they're going to score you points for stuff. So they become those kind of point-scoring cards and deck builders that bloat your deck. Um, but they are not too rubbish. They're still pretty good. Um, or you can actually destroy these King's Orders, like rip them up in a way, um, and say, no, get out of here. You're not welcome. And you get this kind of nice nice bonus, but then it's also some corruption and debt to come with it because you've kind yeah. of been a bit shady. Yeah, that's what that and one mainly is. And, and so it's really cool because the board's got like these cutouts, right? So it's like notch. So the actual like manuscripts actually fit, like nestled yeah. into this board, right? It's all nice and, 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 and cut together. Now, does this board replace the one that comes with the base game or is it an addition to it or how does that work? The manuscript board's an addition and then Keeper of Keys actually comes with the replacement player boards, okay. which are they're like the two mil thick punch board rather than the flat um, paper card. Yeah. And then the Keeper of the Keys. So what is the Keeper of the Keys then? What, that, is that the... So that has the player boards um, with the punch outs for the corruption and virtue markers and right. these new slots at the bottom where you plug in these new chest tiles. Okay. Um, so chest tiles are a new thing you can pick up. Um, they are going to give you some points, but the main thing is that when they sit below a slot, when a card with the right icons lands into that slot, it's going to give you an effect, either immediate or ongoing in that slot. So it helps yeah, you right. kind of tailor make your player board to what you're focusing on. So if, you're, if your deck is built with lots of noble icons, you can get these noble chests to then trigger off effects as, you, as they come into your board and you can manipulate them to move them around and that kind of stuff and the other thing that adds mainly um i think there's the public buildings it adds but also it gives a way of getting more hero cards into your hand um, which hero cards are basically far more powerful townsfolk cards there the, there's the generic ones that you can hide and there's these awesome ones you usually have one but this lets you get them into your hand and then play on turn straight away um, so your deck kind of gets way cooler in that expansion as well oh that's cool so, so you can actually, and this is one of my questions when I was coming in, I was like, oh, these both look really cool, but can you play with them both at the same time? And it sounds like you can. So you can add you both can. these expansions yeah. at the same time. So you can do either or or both, I guess, if you want to kind of fully kind of round out and make your experience uh, more robust. Yeah, it just makes for a much bigger decision space. So like mm. it might be a bit much to play both, but you can, and we have. Um, I think Sam and I, we kind of resolved that we actually would like to play each one separately and maybe both together now and then, but kind of alternate because it kind of keeps it fresh, gives you something you need to focus on each time yeah. you play. So the options are there either way. Does it add to the play time at all? Not really. No. no. It's already got quite a kind of variable length because the players determine how long the game goes based sure. on how they play. Yeah. Um, so it's not, not noticeable at least. Yeah. And then the collector's box. Can you talk a little bit about this collector's box and what that's all about? So it's basically just a storage solution. It has an insert, molded insert, comes with a few crossover promos which basically require both expansions but they integrate mechanisms between them um, so you'll have these outsiders that have to do with um to do with getting heroes or getting chest tiles so crossover effects um, but it's just a just a box with those and the insert and it's designed to house basically everything why counts related well that's cool is this something that you will be doing with your other series as well? Will you be creating kind of like these all-in collector's boxes with expansions or? Not moving forward. <laughs> we, no. um, I actually, we don't, I don't like doing them. Um, That's awesome. Like, we, yeah. we kind of, we, we do them basically because um, people want them. Um, yeah. So we, we've had to do them in the past because we had a smaller box size we like, yeah. but our games are getting bigger and bigger and they're kind of outgrowing these boxes. Yeah. Um, so with with the West Kingdom, we've had to like release these collectors boxes reluctantly. Yeah. 
Um, but for the South trilogy, which I guess we'll talk about at some point, um, and moving forward from that, we're going to do bigger boxes so that we don't have to have these clicks boxes in the first place. I totally get that. I mean, I, I got a game. I just got, yeah, I'm not going to mention which game it is. It's a fun game, but the one bone I had to pick was that I had got the base in the expansion game and the boxes are so efficiently packed. There is zero chance that you can ever combine them. You would need another box, to put everything together. And I kind of wish I had like a bigger box to kind of put everything in. So I can see how people kind of gravitate towards these collector's boxes. In some cases, I've seen people even create their own organization trays and so forth through 3D printing and so forth. It's, you know, when you're in the hobby industry, it's not just as simple as just whipping out a game and playing it. Like people really give a lot of love and care to their games and, you know, really want to make sure they're protected and, and last a long time, right? Yeah. With 18 campaigns now that you've, you've done, uh, clearly you've probably accumulated some knowledge on how to run a proper Kickstarter campaign. For those listeners out there who may be considering doing it themselves, right, launching their own game or, or maybe work with a colleague and putting a game out there, what are some of the things you would think are probably essential when it comes to launching a campaign that you must do when you're launching a campaign? I think the most important thing is um, pre-marketing. So mm. building that community before you launch, you can't just expect to launch and then people will come look at your game. Um, and your first one is always going to be the hardest one. So you, you've got to spend probably half a year to a year preparing for the launch. Um, mm. It's not as easy as slapping on Kickstarter. You might get lucky. You might. Um, but something has to sell it. Um, that can be the artwork, which was more our case, but why we got a lot of success quickly because no one had ever seen Metro's artwork in board games before. So it was like, oh, this is fresh. Um, but that's rare, I think, um, especially now that more and more games come out, there's more and more amazing board game artists, so it's hard to stand out. Um, so you really need to get people on board playing the game a lot and reviewing it, talking about it organically, um, not just review videos. And that's, that's really hard to do, but that's, you know, that's the same for anything in life. It takes a lot of hard work and preparing and stuff, so... If you don't do the pre-marketing, you're most likely not going to fund. Um, but that's not always the case, but you've got to do it. Yeah. In terms of community, is this something you guys have? Like how big is your community now? Is it primary and where is it located? Is it primarily Facebook or Discord or so yeah, we used mainly Facebook early on, um, and also just Kickstarter, um, mm -hmm. because you can, you know, if you have one campaign successful, you can then message everyone through an update to about yeah. your next campaign. So it's really good for that. Um Facebook is kind of dying off, um, you know, for me personally, and I think as most people are experiencing. Um, so we use Instagram uh, mainly for visual stuff. We use Twitter, but I can't stand Twitter. So it's only just little updates here and there. Our main focus is actually a Discord server. Mm. So we've got about 1,700 people in there. Nice. Um, we organize playtesting for TTS through there. We do rulebook proofing. Um, so it's really good because you can have, as a, as a creator, you can assign people roles and those roles give them access to different channels within the, the thing that other people might not be able to see. So we have a channel just for reviewers. So if you want to be in our Discord server and you're a reviewer, we'll give you the Herald role. And now you see this special channel that only you can see that we can announce stuff and uh, you know contact you directly about things. We do that for our scribes who look at our um, our proofreading. So we've got about 20 or 30 people in there that will proofread our games. Wow. Um, yeah, and just give feedback. So it's Discord's really, really good for that community thing but again what why is someone going to join your your group if you don't have that pre-marketing you know 
you've got to really build it and it takes a long time. So, yeah. Well, I guess the, the story there is, is once it's built, now you're building on a pretty wide base, right? Yeah. You got to maintain it and got to really like service your, your fans and your community well um, by, you know, giving them little teasers of new games coming out, that kind of stuff. People get excited about things. So, yeah, I find it interesting that uh, Facebook uh, on the, uh, what I recently did a campaign, it was the first time I started seeing some of the marketing partners saying, hey, we can't really guarantee that these numbers are accurate that we're showing uh, because of these new changes, right, with Apple and uh, Apple yeah. blocking a lot of the cookies and so forth to go on your phone where Facebook for a while there was the predominant way to reach backers, right, through uh, Kickstarter and so forth. Yeah. And now you're finding publishers are having to, find alternate methods to, to get to those people. And the one consistent thread I see across the board is when uh, publishers are building that network of individuals, you know, that um, I don't want to call the fan base. It's more of a, a community building a community around the development of the game where people feel somewhat ownership in the process uh, seems to pay off when the campaign finally does go, go live. Yeah, and that could be like a mail out. You could just, you know, collect email addresses, but that's not as personal as interacting with like a chat or a, you yeah. know, that kind of forum feeling. So BGG is great as well. Um, I get a lot of positive feedback, just people saying, hey, I love seeing you always popping in on comments, you know, things like that. So I'll reply to most of the questions or pretty much all the questions that get put on BGG. And that is as simple as just when you put up your game, put subscribe. Whenever you post something, subscribe. If someone else shares a picture, subscribe you'll get notified. So it's pretty simple. But if you're not, if you don't know BGG well, that might be a bit like, don't know where to start. Just everything you want to be notified about, subscribe. Um, and so I, I get every comment that comes in about any of our games, every picture that gets shared, I see. So that's yeah. a good way to make sure you're out there. People see you interacting, which for them shows that you're invested in your product, um, not just trying to sell stuff um, to push it out. You actually care about the games you're making, uh, which is really important. That's that's how you build community is building that trust. And it's kind of like a bit of respect for your for your, for your followers and your fans as well. So, yeah. yeah. So what comes next after after these two expansions? Is the Viscount series now done? Are you going to keep expanding on that? Or kind of what's up next for you guys? Obviously, you got something else cooking in the oven. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the West Kingdom is done. This is our last Kickstarter for that. Um, it's, this is our fourth year of that trilogy. It's gone really quickly, but um, yeah, we're happy to kind of finish it off, round it off with the two expansions for Viscounts. Uh, our next campaign will be sort of March, April, which is for Wayfarers of the South Tigris. That's so our South trilogy. Um, so we're halfway through the trilogy quadrigy. Um, so that'll be the next like three or four years of our life. We'll be releasing those games and some expansions. We also have our ancient anthology series, which is kind of... Um, We've got Razor Scythia, Hadrian's Wall, and we just announced yesterday Legacy of You, which is a solo-only campaign game. So that'll be probably mid this year, Kickstarter. And then we also have our sci-fi series, Circadians. So we'll have expansions coming for both Circadians games towards the end of the year. Yeah. And then the next wow. year is pretty much planned out as well. And where do you find the time? Like, Do you have support around you <laughs> or is it still predominantly uh, yourself? So I've, we've got three employees at Garfield. Yeah. So myself, my brother, um, Sam Phillips, who does the artwork for most of our games, except for the, the medieval stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then Sam McDonald, who co-designs all of the games with me, he's full-time as well. Yeah. Nice. So we, we bounce back ideas a lot and that kind of keeps things motivated and fresh. Yeah. That's awesome. 
Well, Sam, I want to wish you all the best with this campaign. I know, I think you still have like, is it 10 days to go on this campaign still? Yeah, yeah 10 days totally. to go. Again, over, uh, I'll put in Canadian dollars, over half a million Canadian dollars already. Uh, clearly, this is going to be another massive success for you guys. And I want to congratulate you on that. I mean, it's just cool to kind of see this series end on such a high note. And I want to wish you all the best for these new series that are coming out later on this year. Thanks. You appreciate you take it. Care. Cheers. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Thank you.